We believe the Word of God. I believe the Word of God's inspired by the Holy Spirit and is without error. To consider that Jonah was not swallowed by a fish or a whale would be to deny the truth of God's Word. So how are we to understand this fact. We read about it in Jonah chapter 1 verse 17 where it says, Now the Lord had prepared a great fish to swallow Jonah and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three years, excuse me, three days and three nights. It's not a myth. It's not a non-fiction story. It really happened. Now, those of us who understand that God is omnipotent know that an all-powerful God could have made a fish of his liking to swallow Jonah, you know, just out of thin air if he wanted. But that's not what the book of Jonah says happened. This verse says God prepared a fish. Some translations say he appointed a fish. He made sure the fish was where it was supposed to be at the very moment he needed to swallow Jonah. That's the point. <clears throat> now, I began with the question, did a whale really swallow Jonah? Uh, keep in mind, uh, that's not what the Bible says. It says a fish. A great fish here in Jonah 1.17. Not specifically a whale. The Hebrew word translated great fish is the Hebrew word which was used in, uh, to classify all the fish in the sea, generally speaking. A sea creature is what it's saying. Jonah was swallowed by a sea creature. Doesn't really specify whether it was a whale or fish or what. Now in the book of Matthew, chapter 12, verse 40, we read, in, as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish. Now, that's the New King James translation. And the phrase great fish translates a Hebrew, excuse me, in this case a Greek word, which also is a word which simply identifies the creature as being a sea creature, generally speaking. It's not the word for whale. It's not the word for fish. It's just a sea animal, so to speak. By the way, Jesus spoke those words. So if you're going to deny what happened in the book of Jonah, then you have to deny that the Lord Jesus was telling us the truth. You have to call him a liar, see? No, Jonah was swallowed by some sort of sea creature. Now, <clears throat> what we need to understand as God's people and what determines our response to those who would doubt that Jonah was swallowed is simply this. He could have been swallowed by a sea creature. We don't really know what swallowed him. Scripture leaves it kind of blank. He was swallowed by some sort of sea creature. But if we could identify a known 
fish that could have swallowed Jonah. It's not that we are saying that's the way it had to happen. We're simply saying it's improper to deny the truth of the story because you believe it's impossible. It's not impossible. Just based on the fish that are in the sea. Therefore, in answer to the question, could Jonah have been swallowed by a fish? Yes, he could have. And here's why, briefly speaking. Sperm whales have been known in history to swallow men. Not all whales, but the sperm whale has swallowed sailors. It's fact is revealed in history. White sharks can certainly swallow men. Now the problem with these two particular animals is this. The sperm whales specifically do not frequent the Mediterranean Sea. And great white sharks would kill their prey before swallowing. There is another possibility. That perhaps a now extinct sea creature swallowed Jonah that we don't know about. Certainly a very possible scenario. But here's the one that I think makes the most sense. And I think it at least proves the fact that it could have happened just the way the Bible says it did. And I'm referring to what's known as a whale shark. It's not a whale. It doesn't come to the surface to breathe air. It's a fish. The largest shark in the sea. The whale shark averages between 18 and 33 feet long and weighs over 20 tons as an adult. Now that's a whale shark. And that uh, picture was taken at the Georgia Aquarium in Atlanta. They have some whale sharks on display there. Now keep in mind the people at the bottom of the picture are much closer to you than the shark in the back. The National Geographic website uses a school bus as a good example of how large a whale shark is in length and around and all the rest. The size of a school bus. Here's a comparison that comes from the Info Galactic search site. There's the man to scale on the left and the whale shark in comparison to the man on the right. Could the whale shark have, by the way, whale sharks still swim in the sea. They are, uh, there's some disagreement over whether they're endangered or not, but there are whale sharks still swimming in the oceans. By the way, whale sharks have teeth like sharks, but they're retractable and they seldom use them. They do not feed on animals uh, that needs to be chewed or killed. Whale sharks have a mouth that open up five feet. Well, almost as tall as I am. That's how wide their mouth opens. They come near the surface, open their mouths, and literally suck in everything that will fit. 
then they have a filtering system within that filters out what they don't want to eat or can't eat. What they eat is plankton, shrimp, fish eggs, very small organisms. The larger debris gets caught in their filtering system and at some point expelled. Much the way Jonah was coughed up, by the way. Now, whale sharks have been known to swallow a lot of things in addition to those microscopic organisms that they eat. On page 398 of a German author's commentary that I have on my shelf, there is a footnote that gives some information about whale sharks in the Mediterranean Sea. He says that they have been known to swallow things like seals, tuna fish. One case, uh, they took a dozen tuna from out of a whale shark. In another uh, strange situation, they found a whole horse inside a whale shark. The horse weighed 1,500 pounds. So could a whale shark have swallowed a man? Absolutely. Also in this footnotes, a story about something that happened in 1758. When a sailor fell overboard from a frigate in very stormy weather into the Mediterranean Sea, he was immediately taken into the jaws of a whale shark and disappeared. The captain, however ordered a gun that was on deck to be discharged at the shark, and a cannonball struck the shark, which vomited it up the sailor again that had been swallowed alive, and uh, he was recovered with very little hurt. Just what's swimming in the sea today, yes. A fish, not specifically a whale, but a fish of some sort, sea creature, yes, could have swallowed Jonah. Now, now keep in mind that whale sharks are known to inhabit most uh, tropical waters, as long as the water is above about 72 degrees. And they have been seen on many occasions in and around Israel in the Mediterranean Sea, the eastern part. Keep in mind also that hypothermia sets in between 60 and 70 degrees I'm talking about water temperature. If you fall into the water and the water is 60 to 70 degrees, you're, you're going to begin to suffer from hypothermia. Which, uh, after you've been exposed for a while, would cause you to have shallow breathing, slower breathing, a loss of, un- un- a loss of consciousness eventually, which means that if Jonah was sucked into a whale shark, uh, at the water, Level he would have, he would have been on the, the fringe of not really freezing to death, but he would have maybe been suffering from some of these symptoms. The point is simply this: the story we read in Jonah chapter one really took place. Oh, by the way. Some people say, well, how did he breathe inside that fish? 
And the idea for years has been, well, whales go to the top and they breathe air. But whale sharks go to the surface and gulp in water and air and whatever's there. So if Jonah's rate of breathing is slowed down, his need of oxygen lowered, and uh, then again the fish in his gill system sucks in water and expels water and, and sorts out uh, what it breathes, uh, it's certainly possible. Of course, God could have miraculously provided air somehow. So this story is absolutely, I believe, as it is written, very, very true and absolutely true. We want to back up now from verse 17 all the way back to verse 4, where we left off last week. Now, you remember last week we talked about how Jonah did not want to go to Nineveh. He did not want to preach God's grace and mercy to those evil Assyrians. So he ran away. As far, he, he intended to get as far away from God as possible, the other end of the known world. He went and got on a ship at Joppa, and he headed straight west, all the way to the Spanish coast, to a place called Tarshish. But what we learned last week was two things. No excuse, there, there, there's no excuse for disobedience. See, Jonah knew God could find him, but what Jonah was trying to do in his own way of manipulating circumstances was make it so difficult for God to use him that he would use somebody else. I mean, after all, Jonah paid the fare and was going to Karshish and probably didn't have the money for a fare to get back. Uh, he probably figured God would get tired of, you know, him being disobedient and just, you know, hand off that, hand off that assignment to somebody else. What Jonah didn't know is God had a free ride waiting to bring him back. And God was going to make sure he was on board. Verse 4 says, And the Lord sent out a great wind on the sea. He's on the ship now. He's sailing west in the Mediterranean. God sent out a great wind on the sea. And there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship was about to be broken up. So this is where we are at. God found Jonah. More specifically, the storm God appointed found Jonah. Terrible storms of this nature, not, uh, not prevalent in the Mediterranean during the sailing season. But a storm found him. Verse 5 says, And the mariners were afraid, and every man cried out to his God, and threw the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten the load. But Jonah had gone down into the lowest part of the ship and laid down, and he was fast asleep. Now, the Phoenician sailors are idol worshippers, and amongst those on the crew there were a number of gods represented, false gods, idols. And they were all praying as they worked and as they tried to maintain the boat afloat. And, and they even had to begin to throw out uh, the supplies, and the cargo and the tackle to lighten the boat. Because they were about to be swamped and capsized. But Jonah's asleep down inside the boat. See, how in the world is anybody fast asleep with that going on? Well, think for a minute. Jonah 
had probably spent a number of sleepless nights agonizing over this decision. You know, when you're disobeying God, when you know you're going the wrong direction, your conscience bothers you. He perhaps had lost a lot of sleep. He had, he had spent a lot of time collecting the resources to pay for the fare. Uh, he had had a long trip probably to travel from uh, inland in Israel all the way to Joppa. And he, he had been literally on the run. I think he was wanting to get out of Israel just as fast as he could. He wasn't lingering. Then he gets to Joppa and he finds a ship and he finally collapses down inside the ship and goes to sleep. For the first time, Jonah has some peace because now, now he's going to escape from God. And because of physical exhaustion and all the rest, he falls asleep. And Jonah's just oblivious to everything that's going on. But you see, God wasn't oblivious to where Jonah was. God sent the storm, and the storm found Jonah. Let's get back to the outline here somewhere. I've lost it. <laughs> Sorry. Here we go. Here's the thing that we have to understand. God will find those who run from him. Those who try to responsibilities go in the opposite direction. And the first thing he will do when he finds us is he has to wake us up. Because we're asleep spiritually. Now Jonah needed to be awakened literally, but he also, uh, you know, he needed to wake up spiritually more than that. And here he is in a state of complete oblivion, and what happens next? Verse 6, So the captain came to him and said to him, What do you mean, sleeper? Arise, call on your God. Perhaps your God will consider us so that we may not perish. You see, all the pagans have been praying to their false gods, and Jonah's asleep. For some reason, the captain goes down and finds Jonah. The storm found Jonah, now the captain finds Jonah. What in the world's the captain doing down there looking around anyway? I don't know, maybe he was looking for cargo to jettison. Or maybe he remembered that Jonah was down there, and he said, well, maybe there's a God that we've not been praying to. So he finds Jonah, and he says, hey, wake up and call on your God. Don't you understand what's going on? So Jonah was in a state of oblivion spiritually, and he was in a state of prayerlessness. And, and when you're running from God, there is that too. You're not in communication with God. You're not in dependence upon God. You're not exercising faith in God. You're prayerless. Verse 7 says, And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots, that we may know for whose cause this trouble has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Now, Proverbs 16.33 says in the Old Testament scheme of things that God controls the lot. It was an ordained way of understanding things in those days. I wouldn't suggest it today, by the way. But the storm found Jonah and found the ship, and the captain found Jonah and found him asleep, and the lot fell on Jonah. God knows how to deal with us when we're running away from him. And so Jonah was awakened. 
When God finds us, when he, when we are running from him and he finds us, he first has to wake us up and then secondly, he has to confront us. And that's exactly what the sailors do next. Look at verse 7. So they said to one another, Come let us cast lots that we may know. For whose cause this trouble has come upon us? So they cast lots and it fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Please tell us for whose cause this trouble is upon us. And what is your occupation? By the way, the Hebrew here may actually allow the uh, translation of, what are you doing? You know, not, not what do you do for a living, but what are you doing on this ship? And, and where do you come from, they say? What is your country? And of what people are you? So the sailors confront Jonah after the lot falls on him. And as Jonah now awakened and confronted, he has to admit who he is. So he said unto them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Now, as soon as he said that, the Phoenician sailors truly freaked out. This guy serves the God who created the dry land and the sea. They're already scared to death. Then they hear this, after the lots fell on Jonah. So verse 10 says, Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, Why have you done this? For the men knew that he had fled from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. So in in the process of them confronting him, he explains who he is, where he's from, what God he worships, what God told him to do, and that fact that he is running away from God. And the sailors are terrified, and Jonah's just up until now had no sense that he was even in any danger. He was so spiritually hardened, I guess you would say. So Jonah has to admit who he is, where he's from, and what he's done. The next thing he had to admit was what he deserved. Verse 11, And they said unto him, What shall we do to you, that the sea may be calm for us? For the sea was growing more tempestuous. And he said unto them, Pick me up and throw me into the sea. Then the sea will become calm for you, for I know that this great tempest is because of me. Now nevertheless the men rowed hard to return to land. But they could not, for the sea continued to grow more tempestuous against them. Therefore they cried out to the Lord. Jonah didn't pray, but here's a bunch of pagans on the ship, a bunch of idol worshippers now praying to God. It's ironic how sometimes unbelievers have more spiritual sense than believers do when they're running away from God. Therefore they cried out to the Lord and said, We pray thee, O Lord, please do not let us perish for this man's life, and do not charge us with innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and threw him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly and offered sacrifice to the Lord and took vows. Now they probably did that after the the sea was calm, obviously. So Jonah's sin is made known 
to him and to everybody else who is in danger because of it. Because God has a way of finding us and pointing out our sin and confronting us. By the way, we have the Holy Spirit living within us who interacts with our conscience. How, for whatever excuses we can make for Jonah, I, I, I don't want this to be an excuse. I just an observation here. It's probably a little easier for someone in that day to be this totally spiritually oblivious without the presence of the Holy Spirit in their life on a permanent basis. Well, you and I have literally no excuse for when we do wrong as believers, the Spirit of God puts His finger on it quite quickly and obviously. And for the most part, uh, you know, it's kind of like when my wife tells me I'm wrong. I'll admit it two or three days later. That's kind of the way we are with God, you know. Uh, God says you're wrong, you know. We, we'll eventually admit it. <clears throat> but, but learning to live as we should as Christians means we learn to listen to the voice of the God and, and the Word of God and, and mind our conscience and, and immediately confess sin and not have to go through what Jonah went through. But we don't always do that. Now, when we run from God, God will wake us up and then God will confront us. The next thing that we note here is God's going to afflict us. Now, Jonah's affliction began on the boat and proceeded to to move to the sea where he's cast. And by the way, Jonah had to know that when he went overboard, he was dead. He He was going to drown. It was a death sentence. Now already the sailors had cast out the tackle and cast out the cargo, which meant their livelihood and their payoff for this trip. There's financial ruin all around. If If Jonah had any possessions with him, they're gone. So there's material losses. There's a complete disruption of Jonah's plan. He can't get where he's going. He's stopped dead in the middle of the sea. And now his health and well-being is threatened as he's thrown into the sea. And then we learn, and we, we saw already in verse 17, that God had prepared a great fish to swallow Jonah. So now Jonah's inside of this great fish. It would have been pitch dark, cold. He would have been severely confined, probably couldn't even move. Because if it was indeed a whale shark, he would have been stuck in that apparatus inside the, the shark, which filtered the food. So he didn't really, he wasn't really down in the last stomach. He was kind of in the preparatory part. And only what was allowed to go on down for digestion went down. But Jonah is stuck in there and he can't extricate himself. He's in a completely foreign environment. He had to have despaired of life itself. This is the affliction that God brought into Jonah's life. Tossed into the sea and probably almost drowned and then swallowed up with this fish. Well, God found Jonah. He sent the storm and the storm found Jonah. He sent the captain down the boat and found Jonah asleep and the lot fell on Jonah and Jonah's cast overboard and the fish found Jonah. 
we're always right where God wants us to be. It's just a matter of whether we're in the place he would rather us be. <clears throat> now in the New Testament, in the book of Hebrews, chapter 12, the writer of Hebrews says this about God's chastening. He says, and you have, and you have forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as to sons. This is Hebrews 12, 5. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. Why? Well, let's move on to verse 6. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens. And scourges every son he receives. The word scourge means to be whipped. Corporal punishment of some sort. So the Bible says that if a believer runs from God, gets out of the will of God, turns to sin, is ruining their life, God's going to find them. And God's going to confront them. And God's going to afflict them in some way. Remember in 1 Corinthians chapter 11? The Corinthian church was abusing the ordinance of the Lord's Supper, and Paul said, you know, some of you are sick and some of you went to sleep, some died. It had gotten to that point, and God was afflicting them, and they were not repenting. You remember David's situation after the sin with Bathsheba and what amounted to murder in regard to her husband? About a year passed. And David describes it in Psalm 51, and he describes it what sounds like physical affliction, like he was near death. Before finally Nathan confronts him and he confesses his sin. So David was afflicted, he was chastened. By the word, the word chastened just simply means corrected by corporal means or some sort of suffering. But we read there in Hebrews 12 and verse 6 that the Lord loves those he chastens. So God wasn't punishing Jonah. He was correcting Jonah. And when we do that which is wrong, when we run from God, God doesn't say, well, I'm going to just extract this much pain and suffering. They'll learn a lesson. No, that's not his approach. His approach is I'll, I'll use whatever I have to use to get their attention, to wake them up, to confront them, to, to afflict them so that they will turn back to me because I love them. And if they don't turn to me, they will ruin their lives and they'll destroy their lives and they'll hurt other people and they'll, they will bring dishonor to my name. But God afflicts us out of love. For those who believe in Jesus Christ and know Him as their Savior, it's always better, it's always easier, it's always more <laughs> pleasant to just obey. If you choose to disobey, because God loves you enough to correct you, He will. And so Jonah was afflicted, heart, mind, soul, and body. But there's one final thing that God was doing with Jonah. When he was cast overboard, 
when he told the men to throw himself and throw him into the to the sea. In Jonah's mind, he's a goner. But he wasn't, because God was not at the point of bringing about death. God wanted to change Jonah. He wanted to refine Jonah. And the fish he prepared in verse 17 was a a part of the affliction that Jonah had to endure for three days and three nights. But he was also a vessel of grace. Because if it were not for that fish that swallowed Jonah, Jonah would have died in the sea. He would have drowned. There's no one there going to throw him a life preserver. No one's going to toss him a rope. They'd gotten rid of him. In fact, when we come back to the rest of the story here in a couple of weeks, we're going to find in chapter 2 of Jonah some of what Jonah experienced during that time in the fish. But when Jonah said to the sailors, he said, look, you need to throw me into the sea. Throw me into the sea, he says in verse 12. Then the sea will become calm for you, for I know that this great tempest is because of me. There's a hint of change in the heart of Jonah right there. Now remember, He had refused to go and preach any mercy or grace to the evil Ninevites, the Assyrians in the city of Nineveh. But these people, these sailors, they're, they're idol worshippers too. They are not worshipping the God of Israel. They are as much pagans as those people in Assyria are. Maybe not as bad, but they are as much deceived and away from God. Why, why would Jonah have any thought for their safety? Well, in a sense, he didn't have much choice. I mean, what's he going to do, you know? Uh, he's either going to die alone or die with all them. But he's going to die because God found him in his disobedience. But Jonah does have enough concern for the lives of those sailors. He said, look, I'm the problem. We all know it. Throw me overboard. Your problem, at least, will be solved. I think that's a softening of Jonah's heart to a degree already. Now, he hasn't repented yet. He hasn't come full circle, and God hasn't finished dealing with him, but he's already beginning to experience the refinement of God that comes when God finds us and afflicts us. And so God prepared a great fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. That's where we'll leave him for now. But remember, that fish, be it a whale shark or some other aquatic animal, That fish was not only an instrument of affliction, it was also an instrument of God's grace. Because Jonah didn't deserve to live. Hey, we don't either. 
come to think of it, do we? For the wages of sin is death. But the grace of God came into our lives. When the Spirit of God convicted our heart and souls and we turned to Jesus Christ and placed our faith in Him. And received as an absolute gift from God eternal life. The fish that swallowed Jonah was his salvation as well as his affliction. If the fish hadn't swallowed him, he would have died. God is a gracious God. God is a loving God. God is a merciful God. So if you find yourself in any way in the midst of something similar to what Jonah's life was like here, if you know for a fact that you are in the midst of running from God and disobeying and why you may feel like you're just kind of okay with everything, even though you know things aren't right. Remember, God's working in your life. and Some of those troubles and trials that you're experiencing may well be God's affliction. And uh, He knows how to find you and He knows how to deal with you. It may be time to confess your sin, get back into a a place of good grace with God, a good relationship with Him. But the storm may pass. But thank God for the whale sharks in our life. Many of us, many of us, maybe all of us, have went through a time like Jonah experienced. A time in life which we ran away from God. Went our own way, did our own thing. Was oblivious to God and all he was doing, prayerless, self-centered, self-focused. I know I went through a period of time like that as a young man. And God found me and he knew exactly how to find me. And I'm sure that many of you have experienced something of that nature as well. It only magnifies the grace of God. and only helps us understand what he's done for us. And how much we owe him. And how wonderfully blessed we are to serve him. And to partake of all of his promises. So whether you find yourself needing to deal with some matter of disobedience in your life today. uh, Maybe some of you haven't really placed your faith in Jesus. You're just entertaining the thought. Kind of on the outskirts of real faith, just kind of looking in, observing it all in other people's lives. Or perhaps you're a believer and, and you're okay with God right now, but I'm, let, me, let me explain something to you. Over the years, I've had many people that know Jesus Christ their Savior come to me and say, Pastor, I've been having a lot of problems. What have I done wrong? And I will say to them, in every case, I will say this, well, has God convicted you of something? Has God put his finger on something in your life? Has God shown you something that you are doing that is wrong and sinful? And they'll, in many cases, say, well, nothing I can think of. And I'll say, then you're not, you're not being chastened. You're just experiencing the trials of life. Because I'm telling you, when God chastens a believer, you're going to know the reason why. Your heart's going to echo the words and yell the words into your soul. And you're going to be hounded and convicted. Your conscience is going to bother you and you're going to lose sleep. 
after he catches up to you and wakes you up. But it will happen. But we all go through trials, problems. I went through many of trials where I didn't didn't even think of confessing. And I didn't, uh, other than, you know, when I do something day by day, moment by moment, I confess that. But I mean, I didn't have any long, dark secret I hadn't confessed to God. It's a trial. James 1, verses 2 to 4, read it. God will allow difficulties, trials, manifest problems come into our life. To what? To mature us. To refine us. <laughs> it's the same, he has the same purpose, whether you're going through a trial as a believer that loves God or you're, you're experiencing chastening as a believer who's running away from God. So it's good to be able to make that distinction. Either way, praise God for the difficulties in life because we learn way more from the problems and the afflictions and the trials than we do anything else, perhaps, in day-to-day life. 